Well, hey, grab your Bible or grab your phone. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking um, at Mark 12, 28 through 34. And as you turn to Mark 12, let me just set the scene for us. Um, just to remind you, here's where we're at. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, he is going to be crucified on Friday night, um, on Friday afternoon. And, and so what we're, we're at here is we're on Tuesday. And, and Jesus is on the temple grounds. And he is facing question after question from the religious leaders of the day. Here's some of the questions that he has already answered for us um, over the past few weeks. The chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And then last week we saw this, the, the, um, the Pharisees and the Herodians, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then you've got the Sadducees who paint the story of a woman who has seven husbands. And in the resurrection, who was she married to? We come today to the question of all questions. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28, says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all. We have another section here of the Jewish leaders. It says one of the scribes, and this scribe had overheard Jesus answers his response to the previous questions, and he was impressed. You see that in the text there? It says, seeing that Jesus answered them well. He was impressed with Jesus' answers. He's like, hey, I've got a question that I want to ask myself, and in, in contrast to maybe some of the other questions, this scribe seems to be a little more favorable to Jesus. Maybe not necessarily trying to trap him, but to really understand a question that was on his mind. And his question is this, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, a little background here. In rabbinic tradition, there were 613 commands in the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. 365 of them were negative prohibitions, one for each day. And 248 were positive commands. As you read through their literature, you, you would even hear language like some were light and some were heavy. Some had uh, more of the severest consequences for breaking them. So it would have been natural for the Jews to be thinking about the commands in terms of of priority. And Jesus' answer to this question gets at the heart and core of what life is all about. Let me ask you, do you know what is the most important thing, command that God desires for you? Let's look at the text. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after this, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Before we dive in to these two great commands, I just want to offer a few general observations regarding Jesus' response to this scribe. And the first one is this. The scribe says, which is the most important? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't give the most important. He, he doesn't give one. He gives two. Now, the order is important. He does say the most important is this. But then he says, and the second is this. We're going to come back in a second and get at why Jesus gives two commands versus just one. But that's, that's just my initial first observation. My second is this. These two commands are quotes from two passages in the Old Testament. The first one, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It is referred to as the Shema. It is to Jews what the Lord's Prayer is to Christianity. It would have been recited daily, morning and evening. The second is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. In a series of, of, um, of Moses given commands, uh, you have at the very end here, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Jesus is going back to, and he's quoting, two very familiar commands to any Jew of the day. The third observation that I, that I wanted to just highlight at the, the onset here, outset here is that, um, is that this scribe affirms Jesus' answer. You, you see that in 32 and following? Hey, you're right, teacher. Hey, you passed the test, Jesus. It's like as if he was the one to tell Jesus, like, you're right. Um, but, but he affirms it, but I want you to notice a phrase here that he says. He affirms it at the very end. He says, this is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. The scribe's answer affirms what Jesus says, which elevates the moral over the ritual and the ceremonial. But this would not have been new for the Jewish people. I'll give one example here, and I could give many. When God tells Saul to go destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, Saul goes, and, and God says, complete, I want everything, complete, complete destruction. What does Saul do? He doesn't destroy all of the animals. He keeps them 
to, to offer them as worship to God. And so God sends Samuel, and basically God rejects Saul as king, and Samuel says this to him in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And we could see this over and over, particularly in the prophets who condemn Israel for their ritual observance, and yet there was lacking a moral love and response to God and love of neighbor. The most sacred of rituals have no meaning apart or unless they are expressions of love for God and love for others. One other observation. And this is in verse 31. After Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18, he says this, There is no other commandment greater than these. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually takes it a bit further. Listen to this. It's on the screen here. He says this, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, he sums up the entire Old Testament and says, these two, nothing can compare. Which leads us to ask, like, why does Jesus not just give one command? Why does he give two? Craig Blumberg notes, here's what's happening. He says, what Jesus does is he fuses these commands together in a way that makes the claim of doing one without the other nonsensical. Do you get that? Like, in other words, these two are the greatest because nothing can truly be obeyed unless these two are observed. It takes both of these commands to do what's most important in life. They stand together. They require the other. Here's why. Loving God without loving your neighbor results in mysticism, and loving your neighbor apart from loving God is humanism. In fact, if we were to look into the, the Ten Commandments, which I, can't time, I don't have time to unpack all today, what we would see is that the Ten Commandments are really an expression of loving God and loving your neighbor. The first four are vertically oriented in terms of a right relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Like it's a vertical orientation. And then the final six, so you, the first four, love God. And the final six, love your neighbor. Honor your mom and dad. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Love God. Love your neighbor. So here's what I want to do. I want to unpack three truths for you that I believe are, are instrumental for us to respond rightly to this passage today. And the first one is this. Love God with all your everything. I know that sounds funny, but love God with all your 
everything. Let's look at this first, the most important command here. Notice where Jesus starts in this quote of the Shema. Before the command to love God, it's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our love for God is a response to who God is. This is a statement of uniqueness and exclusivity. There is one God, he is our God, and he is the only God. And in this one God, there's one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We love God because he is most worthy of our love and affection. We see repeated in the Old Testament this phrase, when Moses cries out, God, show me your glory. What does God do? God God reveals himself and he says, here is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. Our love for God is a response to who God is. In fact, God's love for us is what enables us to love him. This is important. If you're, you're here today and you're like, Jesus and this Christianity thing, or if you're watching online and, and this is new to you, this is, this is important. We don't love God so that he will love us. Did you hear me? We don't love God so that he will love us. It's because he loves us that we have the capacity to love him in response. And here's the thing. We will love God to the extent that we recognize and experience his love for us. If you don't experience and if you do not know the love of God for you, you will not love God the way that he wants you to love him. I'll give you one example here. I love in, in the Gospels when the, Jesus has an encounter with, you've got the Pharisees, but then there's this sinful woman who came to anoint his feet with oil. And this is how Jesus describes her and her response in Luke 7, 47. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who was forgiven little, loves little. What's the point? Jesus' point isn't that some are forgiven a lot and some are forgiven a little. His point is this, this woman was aware of her sinfulness and of how much she did not deserve. She understood how much needed to be forgiven in her life. She knew and experienced the love of God and as a result could not help but love God in return. And you and I are just like her. And when we've tasted the forgiveness of God for 
all of our wickedness. God's like, love me. There's no one who can do that and provide that for you. So how do we love him? We love God with all your everything. Jesus gives us four categories, right? Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And I'll just note here, in the Deuteronomy 6 passage, a mind is not included. That is added here by Jesus. Um, but, like, what's going on here? Like, why does he list all of these categories? Well, first let me tell you what's not going on. Um, mul as, as multiple scholars have noted, Jesus isn't intending to provide a, psycho, a, a psychological analysis of human personality. Like, that's not what he's doing here. Rather, these are overlapping categories together that demand a response of everything you are and everything you have. But I do think it's important that he starts with the heart. So think of it this way, that to love God, there is an explosion of love that starts at the core of inside of who you are. It begins in the heart with your affections and desires and is satisfied and fulfilled and filled with the love of God. Then that love extends to your mind and soul, which includes your intelligence and your thoughts, and then it moves outward to your entire being with all that you are and everything that you have, your strength, your will, your entire body, your mouth, your hands, your feet, to love God. And every single one of these categories is modified with the word all. Like that ought to be echoing as we read this. All, 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 all. And then he describes all of these categories that describe who we are. It, it is reinforcing that this is a total response of love and devotion to God. When you love God this way, every area of your life is open and available to God. So I ask, is it? Every area of our life is open and available to God. It's God, would you come in and I want the love of God to reign supreme. There are no rooms in our lives that we lock the door and say, God, this is off limits. And let, let me just plead with you. This is for your good. If you're here today and there's an area that you, you're like, man, nope, God, you, you've got this, but I'm not letting you in here. Like, it is not for your good. God is calling you to love him with everything because it is what is most best for you. It is what is most satisfying. It is what is most fulfilling for you. When you love God this way, every relationship of your life is influenced. Is it? Our tendency is to compartmentalize our love for God. So there are certain times in my life when I will love God. Like, Hey, I'm loving God at 1030 at Medford High School. When I connect with my community group, 
And when that new discipleship group is formed, that's when I love God. When I read my Bible in the mornings, that's when I love God. No, that's, that's not what this means here. This is a response of all of your life for all of your being for the duration of your life. Like all of life is worship. We compartmentalize our love for God. Hey, God, I've given my 10%. And now I've got 90%. That is not what's, like, God's like, all of it is mine. He wants all of it. Our tendency is, is, to, is to write out the priorities in our life. So, like, I've got God, and then I've got my wife, and then third is my kids, and then fourth is my church, and then fifth is my work, and like we keep going down like that. that that's not what he's getting at here. It's God is first, and then second, God in my family, and third, God with my kids, and fourth, God with my church, and Fifth, God with my, and I, I think I messed the numbers up, but whatever, God in my work. Like, it's God in all of it. When I look at the world we live in, this is what I see. And as I'm asking, I, I, I'm asking you to look inward. Because this is what, like, the scribe is coming to interrogate Jesus, but Jesus' answer needs to interrogate every single one of us. Like, it's demanding a response. Like, do you love God this way? When I look at the world, I see, like, what, what do people deem important in life? You may disagree with my assessment here. Money and possessions. Sex, family, in particular, just like make your kids the idol of your life and give them every desire that they want. Fourth, sports, Patriots, Red Sox. Hey, those two grand slams, all right, I got to keep us focused. Um, Bruins, I mean, you, we could go on. We know that in Boston. And then work. How many of you know that it's not God in my work, work is my God. I live for work. That's where my identity's found. That's where my meaning in life is found. God is the last thing in most people's thinking until something goes wrong. Death, an emergency, then it's God. But hey, I got it until that happens. Here's what's happening. Jesus is saying, this is what you were made for. You were made to love and know God. So do you know like, why we're doing discipleship groups? It's for the purpose of accelerated spiritual growth. In short, we need increasing spaces for disciples to help each other know and love God. Love God with your everything. The second truth is love others as you love yourself. As we start to unpack this, 
I want to ask this. What is the relationship between loving God and loving others? Let's think about that together. Because the order of these commands is important. Jesus tells us the most important is love God. We see that displayed in the Ten Commandments. The very first commandment is no other gods. That is foundational. Loving God is what makes it possible for me to love my neighbor. Loving God is what's going to strengthen and sustain me in loving my neighbor. As we're going to see in a second, loving others as I love myself is wicked hard. It is costly. It is sacrificial. If you don't love God, you will not continue to do good. You will grow weary. One author notes this, we love others best. We will love others best when we love God most. As we are only able to freely give to others what we have freely received from him. And this is the message we see. I wish I could unpack more of 1 John. But like, you want to learn about the love of God, its relationship to loving your neighbor? Go study 1 John. 1 John 4, 7 says this. Beloved. You hear the word? Beloved. You are loved. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's tying all of this together. You are empowered to love others because you've experienced the love of God. And as a result of that, go love. And so John's going to say, if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. And you don't know God. These two are tied together. Loving others is the visible expression and manifestation of our love for God. An explosion of love in your heart cannot just go vertical, it must also go horizontal to those around you. So who does it go to? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Who, who is my neighbor? If we were to go back to Deuteronomy 6, like in the immediate context, like it would have, it would have been to other Jews. That was your neighbor. But as we study the Gospels, I mean, go read about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Hey, who was my neighbor? It's the Samaritans that you don't even like. And Jesus is going to talk to us about loving our enemies. And so neighbor in the gospel is expanded to all of humanity. So practically speaking, like you need to start getting a grip, a grasp of like who was your neighbor. So like, just think of like concentric circles and start with who's closest to you and extend outward from there. So like your most immediate neighbor is think of where you live and spend most of your time. So for me, it's my spouse and it's my kids. For you, maybe it's your roommates. Then you extend from there and you, act, you have your actual neighbors, right? Who are living a few feet to the left or right or front or back. And, and you ought to know those by name. Who are those actual neighbors. And then you go to your church family and your community group and your discipleship group and the people you serve on teams with. Like those are people that you're connected with. They are your neighbors. You go to your workplace. Who's in the cubicle beside you or the Zoom through the computer? Like I know work is different in a lot of ways now, but like you, the people you work with, the where you go to school, 
your classmates. You go to your city. Like, we could keep expanding out these circles. But, hey, we need to be careful here. Jesus doesn't just say, go love the people near you that you like. Did you hear me? Like, we hear this and, yeah, like, man, it's easy for me to go love that person. His point really is this call to love neighbors that you don't even choose and in in, in among whom you might not actually ever choose to love. And how does he tell us to love them? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a very radical command. He could have just said, go love your neighbor. But by adding as yourself, amps it up and cuts at the very root of the sin in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I'm a very selfish person. Even as a pastor, as a disciple and follower of Jesus, I see selfishness show up in multiple areas of my life. So I want you to think about this. How do you pursue your own satisfaction and well-being in life? Just think about this afternoon. You've probably got some thoughts on, hey, this would be a satisfying afternoon. I'm going to do this. And this is how I'm going to go about it. Think about what you pursue and how you go about it. Jesus is saying, go love others that way. That's wicked hard. Anybody else like there with me? Thank you. I see a couple hands. Like, this is wicked hard. Let me make this practical. Like, I want to try to, like, apply the same energy passion, zeal, and creativity that you use to pursue your own satisfaction, you go apply that to others. Like if I'm honest at times, the way I love others is not the way I love myself. It's, it's the second hand. Like, man, it's my leftovers. I'm being real with you guys here. Like, man, I, I'm growing as a follower of Christ. And I'm wanting to be honest to inspect and suspect. Like what's going on in my own heart? As you long for food, as you long for clothing, as you long for a great job, as you long for a place to live, as you long for a family, as you long for good grades, as you long for safety and security, as you long for friendships, as you long to be welcomed, so love your neighbor. As I begin to really wrestle with this, I realize that loving others this way is going to require big sacrifice on my part. Sacrifice of time, sacrifice of convenience, and sacrifice of comfort. It's going to be costly, and it's going to be inconvenient, and to do this well is going to require intentionality. So I want to give you just some practical suggestions here. I think I've got five, maybe four. One, start by praying. That's always a good place to start. Pray for others around you. Like, just, like, go journal this week and ask the, answer this question, who are, my, who are my neighbors? And just start praying for them. And then ask God, would you open my eyes and lead me to know how you want me to love them? Second, 
Strive to be intentional with others. Put your phone away. Ask good questions. Follow up on the things they've already shared with you. Here's a question to consider as you think about being intentional. What do you wish your roommate, your spouse, your coworkers, your classmates would do to you to show you love and support? Like, what would that look like? What would it look like for the people you listed there for them to really show you love and support? Now, here's what I want you to do. What do you think your roommates, spouse, coworkers, classmates wish you do, you do to them to show love and support? Like, that's the mentality. You're like, this is what I would, would show me. Now, like, man, what would show them? And then go run after that. Third, be an encourager. And then fourth, seek specific ways to help. The more specific, the better. I'll give you an example. Hey, is there any way I could help you? That's pretty general. And what's most people going to say? No, nah, hey, I'm, I'm good. I've done that. Like somebody's offering, if it's like, but hey, I've got an extra hour today, and I want to help you move something forward. What can I do to help you? It's specific. I said, hey, I've got an hour, and I, like, I want to help you do that. Now, I could probably get more specific if I really pray and discern. I may actually know how I could help them. And so I go initiate. Loving your neighbor is this. I'm not going to be reactionary and force them to ask me. I'm praying, God, would you help me be proactive and to go initiate it? I keep coming back with some sidebars about discipleship groups. Why discipleship groups? It's a great way to go love your neighbor. I need others to help me in my pursuit of, of loving others well. Like As hard as this is, I need two or three or four other men to be in this and say, man, I'm really struggling to love X, Y, and Z. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you help me consider how to do that? Dream with me. What the world most needs right now is to see a church living with this kind of neighborly love. What if every block, every street, every neighborhood in Medford and in our surrounding communities was filled with disciples who were striving to love God with their everything and love their neighbors as themselves? Love God with your everything Love others as you love yourself. And the third truth, look to Jesus for pardon and power. Look to Jesus for pardon and power. Our response to these two commands, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but I've had to prepare to preach it this week. And it's crushed me at times. Because this is what all of life is about. And increasingly, I'm aware of thoughts and desires that are not for God. Like, where did that come from? Or, man, I'm struggling to love my neighbor as myself. And it, these two commands exposes our hearts. It lays bare our souls. And there's none of us in here who've perfectly kept these commands. In fact, if we were completely honest, we would probably say even our best attempts are polluted 
by the presence of indwelling sin. So what are we to do? Who will deliver us from our own sinfulness? There's been a passage that God has just used powerfully in my life over the years, and I can't unpack the whole of it, but I want to give two verses in Romans chapter 8, which Paul writes, and he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law cannot save me, and the law cannot change my heart. By sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for for sin. He was like us, but not like us in the sense that he never sinned. He condemned sin in the flesh, in Jesus, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in me, and in you who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's perfectly fulfilled these two commands. He has loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has loved us, his neighbors, even his enemies, and willingly laid down his life for us. Through Jesus, God condemned sin through his perfect life and his sacrificial death. And so when you come to Jesus, you are completely forgiven of every failure to keep these two commands. And not only that, his perfect keeping of them is credited to me. So God looks at me as a child And he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus. And this is what we mean when we talk about this rich word, justification. I have been justified. I have been made right. And it's not because of anything good in me. It's because of Jesus. And so this invitation is a call to make much of Jesus. Look back at the text here. Do you see how Jesus responds to the scribe? Verse 34. Look at what it says. It says, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What's going on here? Jesus is not saying, go try a little harder. If you'll try a little bit harder to love God and love your neighbor, like you're you're this close. Rather, he's saying this, the way you enter the kingdom of God is by drawing near to me. In fact, the entire law points to me. You need to be made new. You need a new heart. You need to be changed from the inside. And guess what? When you draw near to me, that's what I do. Oh, and by the way, this was the promise of the new covenant. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. This is in Deuteronomy. This is the gospel here. 
He's saying this is like, this should be looking. The Jews were to be looking. Hey, we can't love God this way because of the wickedness in our heart. God, would you send somebody who would circumcise my heart and change my heart? And Jesus is telling this scribe, hey, this is who I am. You can probably tell I'm a little excited now. So I had to end here because you can't just leave with the two commands to go love God and love your neighbor. You need Jesus, not just for the new person, but for the believer that's been a follower of Christ for 50 or 60 years. Make Jesus your focus. Look to Jesus for pardon and power. And when you do that, here's what's gonna happen. You will discover more and more of your own sin and your devotion to lesser gods. This will drive you to seek for more and more of Jesus. More pardon, more power, and you will find that God's grace is sufficient. You can't out-sin God's grace. And as a result, this moment by moment, looking to Jesus, making him your greatest treasure, having your soul satisfied by Jesus, you will receive power to love others. And you know what the fruit of your life will be? That Romans 8 said, and, and, and the, that the requirement of the law now might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When he, when he changes your heart and he pours the Holy Spirit in you, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The Holy Spirit enables you and me to live the way the law originally intended for the Jews to live. And so here's the point and the invitation. Draw near to Jesus to receive pardon and power, to love God with all your everything, and to love others as you love yourself. Where is God calling you to fresh repentance because you haven't been loving God with your everything? Is there any area that God and the Holy Spirit is just saying, hey, Man, you've shut me out here, and, and man, I want to come in and satisfy. Which neighbor, which person, and I would actually encourage every single person ought to have at least one name that they leave today, that they're saying, this is a neighbor by the grace of God that I want to go love as I love myself. As I invite the band up here, they're going to lead us in a song called Give Me Faith. And the chorus of this song goes something like this. Give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. I give you my life. I give you my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. And then in the chorus, sorry, in the bridge, it concludes with this, because I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. My flesh may fail. My God, you never 
will. Make this your prayer. God, we need fresh pardon and power through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we need your help. We need your grace. God, we are weak. We are broken. God, we need more of you. God, help us to look to you. God, help us to respond with eyes of faith, to see the work of your spirit, to empower the hard days ahead of loving our neighbors. But God, may it be a love of joy because of the the joy that we find in Christ and how you satisfy us. So God, speak to us, lead us, work in us as we sing, I pray in Christ's name, amen.